all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is your program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have about yourself or someone else, those answers to your questions about uh, a new symptom or maybe it's a new medical condition that you don't quite have a hold on or just about anything that you want to discuss. It doesn't have to be what the last caller or what Dr. Jimmy said. You can say, uh, you can uh, ask any kind of question you want. Or if you're not able to call us, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody is enjoying a, is it fall? Is it early winter? Or is it Summer Dash Two. I don't know these days, so it's uh, certainly I just walked across campus uh, uh, a little bit and uh, was expecting a little bit cooler temperatures based on what it was this morning. But man, it's that sort of typical thing. It's a little bit hotter though than usual, and certainly we need the rain. So hoping we'll get that soon. But I hope everybody's taking the time to. Enjoy what you, uh, if you are able to get outside and get around, certainly, you know, we have a lot of luxuries here in the South, particularly during our cooler months, fall and winter, to uh, enjoy the outdoors a little bit more. It was just interviewing for one of our residency programs here at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and, uh, you know, one of the things that the applicants uh, asked was uh, opportunities for those outdoor activities like tennis and so forth. So just keep that in mind. This is an excellent opportunity to continue to do that or to start it up if your uh, physician says it's okay for you to start a new exercise program. certainly has a lot of benefits for your own health. Now, one of the most common questions I get in clinic is about memory loss. And, of course, everybody is very concerned as you get older about dementia and uh, particularly Alzheimer's type dementia, but any type of dementia can be devastating for individuals and families, and it's one of the things that they worry about long term. Um, and uh, sometimes you just don't quite know how to approach this. I have a lot of family members that contact me after those visits and say, you know, how, how do we talk about this? Sometimes even with your own family members, it can be very difficult to talk about concerns that you might have about dementia. One of the websites that has a lot of good information for this is alzheimers.org, so that's A-L-Z.org, and they really talk about Alzheimer's and dementia, but one of the pieces of information they give is 10 steps to approach memory concern in others. So if you do have somebody in your family or maybe a friend, how do you approach that? And uh, these are some great questions that uh, I've given to my patients and want to Make sure I share that with our audience uh, that's listening today. 
number one is what changes in memory thinking or behavior do you see? Um, so what is that person doing or not doing that's out of the ordinary or causing some concern among family members? Maybe it's a little bit about getting confused with certain things like how to find their way home after going out to eat. Uh, maybe it, if it's a difficulty with recalling certain events or names, uh, things like that. You know, what are the specific things in memory thinking or behavior. So it's not just what you can recall, it's how do you process things and how do you behave? What are some of the things that you do? So that's a good question to start off with. Another good question is what else is going on? So there may be some other medical conditions that are affecting memory, certain things like sleep disturbances. Maybe there's somebody else in the family that's sick and they've been up caring for them throughout the night. Uh, what other health or lifestyle issues could be a factor, like maybe uh, the family stressors we just mentioned, or maybe there's some health issues like diabetes or depression that are uh, may not be under the best control that can affect memory, and a lot of those can be reversible. So thinking about that, about what else is going on, is a great question to ask someone. Another one is learning about the signs of Alzheimer's and other dementias and the benefits of an early diagnosis. So educating yourself on this for someone in your family can be an excellent thing to do. And uh, there's certainly, uh, and again, alzheimers.org, A-L-Z.org is a great resource for this, uh, to really educate yourself on what are some of the warning signs for Alzheimer's are, Alzheimer's are. Uh, and other dimensions, and why it's important to know that uh, and to distinguish whether something else is causing those changes in behavior and thinking and memory, because, uh, again, some of those may be something that you can do something about. And um, noticing, you know, just asking those questions, do you notice any of those signs in the person that you're concerned about can be very important. This is Southern Remedy. You can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpb online.org. Another question to ask if you're trying to approach somebody with uh, that you, you know, want to know if they're having uh, dementia symptoms or a, a possible dementia diagnosis that's undiagnosed uh, is, has anyone else noticed the changes? You know, sometimes it's, you think you're the only person noticing things, but if you talk to anybody else, or you can ask that person, has anybody told you that you have had problems recently remembering certain things. So finding out if friends and family have seen any changes is important and asking what are they? If they have noticed something, what are the specifics about that? Maybe there's some overlay with what you or someone else is noticing. And then, you know, sort of shifting to from fact finding to thinking about a conversation and how conversations can be very helpful. And again, this is one of those diagnoses or potential concerns that people don't like to talk about sometimes. They uh, oftentimes might become offended, so thinking about how you might communicate that would be important. So one of the first questions uh, in taking action through conversation is, who would have the conversation to discuss their concerns? So in every family uh, or in different uh, friend situations, there's probably one person that um, might be sort of a trusted friend or family member that has a good relationship with that person, person or it might be a combination of people that can have those uh, open-ended discussions with that person that you're concerned about. 
And it's usually best to speak one-on-one rather than having, I know sometimes people will say, hey, we just need to get the family together and confront this person with this. And I'll caution families sometimes and say, you know, it that might, might be a good follow-up, uh, but an initial um, conversation with someone, it, one-on-one with that trusted person so that they don't feel threatened by a group or sort of ganged up on, that's probably a lot better. But they can use their best judgment to try to think those things out and what would be the most comfortable for that individual. Because, again, these are some uncomfortable questions to uh, ask somebody from time to time if they, if they um, are potentially having some problems with, uh, with dementia. Another question to ask is what's the best time and place to have the conversation? Um, having it sooner rather than later is always good. So it's in our nature to postpone these types of conversations until you have the exact right moment. However, um, choosing a date and time and considering when that person is going to be most comfortable um, you know, one of the things that families will say was, hey, we've got this gathering coming up, say Thanksgiving or a birthday celebration, and everybody's going to be there. It might be a good, you know, chance to talk to them. Those can be stressful situations, particularly if that person, uh, if that patient has already some signs and some markers of dementia, that's already going to be a stressful situation. So to confront them or to ask them these questions during those time periods may not be the best time. So you got to think about that, about what would be best for that individual. Uh, another question is uh, if you are considering somebody uh, with, uh, with dementia is what will you or the person having the conversation say? So, for instance, here's some things that you might try. I've noticed a certain change in you, and you have sort of named that change, and I'm concerned have you noticed it? Are you worried? Or have you, how have you been feeling lately? Have you, you just haven't seemed like yourself? Or, again, noting a, a specific example of something and say, hey, I noticed that and it worried me. Has anything else happened like that before? So sometimes giving yourself a script to say beforehand that you can go ahead and sort of commit to memory or at least have a game plan about how to approach that can always be better than sort of walking in cold. So think about what you might say to that person uh, in initiating these conversations. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you. You can always email us. We do try to answer those questions as soon as we can and to share those if you give us permission with our listening audience. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. So Dr. Jimmy, I've got a question for you. Sure. So the other day I jammed my finger in a dresser drawer and the nail got kind of bent back and it's a bled a little bit under the fingernail and had one of that kind of that white line you sometimes see on your nails when they kind of get distressed. Nothing got pulled off or whatever. So I'm wondering, did I uh, dodge a bullet by not having the nail kind of come off? Is it that very frequent? And if so, how do you go about treating a missing nail? Yeah, great questions. And trauma to the nail bed, or fingers or toes, for that matter, can cause some changes in the nail structure itself. Our, our nails are sort of laid down with uh, what's called a matrix. Uh, it's not the movie. It's not going to have Neo coming out of your your nails in green tint there. But it is basically that. Those are the cells that's their job to form that that keratin material that makes up our nails. And they do it in an organized way. Of course, they don't grow fast, so it's about a millimeter a day at the most. Uh, some some people a little bit faster, some a little slower. That's about an average. Uh, but if you do something to that nail bed matrix 
and it can be trauma. You can sometimes see some damage. Um, a classic one with what a lot of times with what happens with uh, patients is chemotherapy or a severe illness. That matrix, those matrix cells that produce those fingernails or toenails, they'll be damaged, and you can see those lines come out. And there's different names for those. Uh, Mees lines is one of those. That's M-E-E-S. Um, and these can be that little white hypopigmented line across there, horizontally across there if you're looking at them. And for most of the time, if the damage is not too severe to that nail bed, uh, then that will that white line, as it lays down more normal nail behind it, will be sort of pushed out with the rest of the nail. Um, but it, if it's enough damage to the nail matrix itself, you can see dysmorphic changes to the nail. In other words, it's not going to have that smooth contour to the nail over your finger. It may have some rough edges or a rough line down it. Um, so that's, unfortunately, there's not much to do if it does interfere with how the nail is being pushed out. And if it, you know, if you're having sort of a hang nail or if you've got some ingrown nails, particularly on your feet, then sometimes you'll have to remove that nail completely. Now, every once in a while, you'll get damaged enough to where that matrix is totally destroyed and it can't lay down new nail on that finger. And there's not really much to do about that. It's not a dangerous situation. You just want to have a nail there. Um, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, who paint their nails, they'll go ahead and paint over that. Um, nothing wrong with doing that of just the skin that is underneath the nail once it's, off, you know, healed up and off um, and looks pretty much about the same as, as having a nail there. But yeah, it's there's not really a good way to predict that. You just sort of have to sort of wait and see if that matrix material is going to make it. And even if you have severe crush injuries to the finger, it's pretty variable about how that nail is going to recover. Uh, so, you know, and again, you just, just sort of have to watch and see about that. I would add one other thing. Um, melanoma, one of the things that people don't realize is it doesn't have to be just on your skin. So some people can say, well, I bumped my toe, but this dark spot started coming up right underneath the nail. And um, it looks like it's, you know, the nail is sort of darkened after that. Um, and they sort of blow it off and say, yeah, yeah, I just injured my, my toe. And that happened. But you can have melanoma present in that area. So anything that's pigmented and out of the ordinary you may want to get your physician to look at it and maybe even a dermatologist um, because, again, catching that earlier would be would be the thing to do. But a uh, great question. That's Kevin Farrell, our producer, and always handy with a good question about something, and uh, that's uh, just another good example of that. Let's go to Beverly from Louisiana on the line. What's your question today? I had to take Lavaquin um, about three months ago, and, and since that time I've had some severe pain in my leg and some in my back, and I wonder if that could be tendon damage from the Levaquin, and how common is it? Yeah, that's a good question. So the fluoroquinolones, Levaquin being one of those, Cipro is another one, common one that's used. They're, those are antibiotics, and um, they're very useful with different types of infections. One of the unique side effects with that group, though, is they can, in some people, they can cause some tendon damage. Still fairly, um, you know, not a whole lot of people have that, so it's not that common. And there's not really good predictors other than if you had somebody who already had tendonitis 
particularly in their heel, their Achilles tendon, um, you might want to choose another antibiotic in those cases. But outside of that, it's a little bit difficult to predict who's going to have the problems and who's not. And typically, it will happen around the time that you give it, and it will usually be in one particular area. So it it might be, you know, if you did have it, it would probably develop pretty close to when you got that antibiotic. So it's a little bit outside of the normal time frame that you're given if you're still having problems. And typically, right. like the, the lower leg is one that you can have that. But it's usually not pain or soreness in your muscles. It's in the tendon itself. And I've, you know, just anecdotally, I haven't really seen that much of it in the back. I've certainly seen it in the Achilles just because that area takes a lot of pressure day to day and walking and moving around. Um, but they, you may want to, you know, out at this particular time frame, usually stopping the antibiotic, it goes away. Certainly after three months, it probably should go away unless it's just getting re-injured. But if you haven't had somebody look at that or maybe even get some blood work or, or look at, you know, sort of what the mechanism is, particularly in your back, there may be some other reasons why you're having that. I can probably find several reasons for the back. It was just my leg that I was really concerned about. And how far out does the Leviquin have that effect? Yeah, usually once you stop it, after a couple of weeks, that that effect's gone. Now, the damage to the tendon, the damage to the tendon sometimes can be, you know, a little bit longer than that. But usually three months, regardless of the damage to the tendon, if you give it a little bit of time to rest, most of the time it's going to recover on its own just fine. So um, I think you're probably out of the range that the Leviquin would be still doing it. Uh, Yes, it sounds like another problem, doesn't it? It does, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, that's that's okay. that's the uh, that's the job of a doctor. Like we were like, okay, we think it's this, but uh, we need to look somewhere All else. Right. It's a bit of detective work. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Emmy Lou from Tupelo. Good morning, Emmy Lou. Good morning. So I have RA and fibromyalgia, okay. and my I am pretty much in constant pain and fatigued all the time um, from those illnesses. My rheumatologist has said, basically, you're out of luck. If there was a pill or something that we could do for your pain or fatigue, we could or we would, but there is no such thing. You're just going to have to live with it. What are your thoughts on that? Let let me ask a couple of questions. And clarifications for our listeners so uh you mm-hmm. said you had ra and fibromyalgia correct yes rheumatoid okay. arthritis right and fibromyalgia. So, yeah so two separate conditions sometimes patients have them at the same time unfortunately rheumatoid arthritis for all of our listeners is an autoimmune process so it's it's an uh an overactive immune system that's destroying the synovium of the joints and it can be it can be targeted with different medications. Now, uh, you know, sort of a classic one and one to sort of quiet down the process right up front is prednisone, which is a mm-hmm. steroid. But then you want to you really want to be more targeted after that and try some other medications that are more specific that are not going to cause all the side effects of prednisone. So, have you been treated or currently being treated with medications to? to decrease those, that process in, in rheumatoid arthritis? 
So I am a younger female. I, I, I'm only 41, and they don't want to keep me on prednisone. Right. When I have a large flare-up that I am treated with, you know, a step-down of prednisone, you know, a large dose and then step-down for, you know, a few days. But we, it's not a constant dose right now. Gotcha. Because of my so you, age. I don't want the, the osteo stuff to the prednisone to make my bones worse. And have they considered things like methotrexate or uh, plaquenil? I'm or currently on both of those. <laughs> okay, all right. And do you know if your inflammatory markers or the are you getting a good response to those? I guess is what I'm what I'm looking at from from the clinician standpoint. From the clinical standpoint, most of the time when I go back, um, my inflammation markers are not majorly elevated. Uh-huh. Yeah, so so it you know that's one of the ways that that we look at rheumatoid arthritis, we have certain blood tests that we get and I know you know this Emily, I'm just trying to make sure we talk about it. So and that and a lot of times those are like a sed rate or a CRP and then there's okay. some other markers too from time to time. But if you're not getting, you know, there's there's two different things here. And, again, fibromyalgia is a different thing, not debilitating. Right. It certainly can cause a lot of pain, but it doesn't destroy joints. It's more mm-hmm. of a of a muscular-based uh, treatment. We know some things that do work long-term, certainly exercise, physical therapy, and uh, some types of antidepressants that have been used for chronic pain are useful in that. So if you're not on something like that, you know, Cymbalta is probably the, the one – that comes to mind that's that's been one of the more helpful ones long term uh with with from the fibromyalgia standpoint but i would i don't i don't see any reason why you couldn't get a second opinion particularly from a rheumatologist to see if there's other alternatives now you're not you're not too young for one of the other DMARDs like some of the other monoclonal antibody therapies are available that are even more targeted than say the methotrexate and the plaquenil so that might be a, another route to go to if you would qualify for those. Sometimes certain insurances do make you jump through some hoops with different treatments for that uh, before you can go to it. But that might help out from the rheumatoid arthritis standpoint. From the fibromyalgia, you really do have to hit it from a couple of different directions. And physical activity, even though it may sound like that might worsen things overall, certainly it is better for both of those conditions long term if you look at patients in bigger bigger studies but if you're not if you've gone down all those routes i would say get a different you know a second opinion from another rheumatologist it might be a little bit of travel for you but that might um that that might be helpful in seeing a different maybe a different route to treating them okay all right thank you yes ma'am thank you for calling plenty of time for your calls any type of health care issue you might be dealing with. Let's go to Tom from Brandon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, regarding your earlier conversation about dementia, uh, I would like your uh, expert opinion on a situation. I have someone that's in their late 70s that either can't because she says she's just too tired or won't get out of bed and stays in bed for 16 or more hours a day uh, for most days. Uh, And my question would be, uh, actually I have two questions. One question would be, 
is this a early indication of onset dementia or is staying in bed that long uh, going to be a cause of uh, bringing on dementia? Yeah, great questions, Tom. And uh, that's a common one that we get in clinics sometimes. So, uh, you know, sleeping that much or hypersomnolence. Um, so, Basically, it can be both a symptom of something going on like dementia. Uh, as far as causing it, certainly if it's interfering with social interactions and other things that you're doing, if you're sleeping so much that you're not really getting up and getting around, that can take its toll over time. So the first thing, though, to, to question and to try to get to the bottom of it is why is, is this person so sleepy and, and sleeping that much? And it may be something that's correctable. It might be a thyroid problem that's causing them just not to have any energy. Sometimes changes in cortisol levels can do that as well. So there may be a medical reason why they're doing that that needs to be investigated. But other things like depression, that's uh, one of the symptoms of depression is excessive sleep uh, or wanting just to you know sleep all day long like that. That can be you know something else going on. And really for any type of dementia, uh, including Alzheimer's, you really have to exclude these other things first before you can say, okay, this might be a symptom of, of dementia. But usually as a symptom of dementia, excessive sleep is one of the later things that might happen. So it's typically not one of the earlier things that happen. But I think a first step is, you know, going to a physician and saying, hey, these are the symptoms that we have um, let's let's investigate and see what's going on with them. And I bet, you know, you're going to find probably something else that's going on that's causing her to sleep that much. Yeah, that brings me to my second question after the last caller's question about fibromyalgia. She does say she has fibromyalgia, and that causes her to not want to get out. Uh, is there a definitive test for fibromyalgia or some kind of marker or is it just based on the opinion of the patient? So it's, it's, it does have a, a uh, system of diagnosis that's based on symptoms and on physical exam, but it doesn't have a marker like a blood marker or something like that or a test that you can do uh, like an X-ray that can give you that information. So uh, a lot different than, say, rheumatoid arthritis where you have to look at all of that with fibromyalgia, there's not really a blood test that can tell you that. In fact, you know, one of the things we, we use for patients that we've just mentioned with, with rheumatoid arthritis and other uh, autoimmune inflammatory diseases is uh, those, those inflammatory markers like CRP and ESR. You can have fibromyalgia and have totally normal levels of those. So it's not very helpful. Even if they're positive, it's not very helpful. So usually fibromyalgia is just diagnosed based on a criteria system of trigger points that they have and symptoms of the patient. You know, because in the late 70s, osteoarthritis and whatever, uh, you know, obviously you're going to have symptoms similar to what I would think fibromyalgia would be. But, well, but there's yeah, no osteoarth- way to know for sure that this patient or this person is... Uh, does actually have fibromyalgia. There's no real definitive test, I guess. Well, it, it is. You need to be, you know, certainly a physician can make that diagnosis, but you're right. It's a lot different. And, 
you know, osteoarthritis, any kind type of arthritis is different than fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia doesn't have pain in joints. You could have osteoarthritis and have fibromyalgia, but but it's not a joint pain problem. It's a muscular pain problem. So the 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 distribution of those is quite different than say arthro any type of arthritis. So, um, but yeah. You know, certainly I've had a lot of patients that had fibromyalgia over the years. And again, it is treatable. Um, you want to make sure that you don't have some of those other anti-inflammatory conditions uh, or autoimmune conditions because uh, those can be treated in a different kind of way. But it is something that, that patients can, you know, and I, I, I always tell them, you know, the pain is real and discomfort and, and, you know, difficulty in getting up and getting around is real, but it's not in the same kind of way where you're debilitating your joints to the point where you're going to have to have a joint replacement or your muscles are going to break down to the point like some of the other myopathies. So it's, it is a lot different. And we do know, you know, again, because of the data that get, even if you don't feel like it, getting up and moving around and having a structured exercise or physical therapy program, those are all very helpful in the long-term management of fibromyalgia. Okay. Well, thank you, doctor. You're always, uh, a fountain of knowledge, and I appreciate <laughs> the help. Oh, thank you, Tom. We do appreciate you calling and listening. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Francis from Mobile. Good morning, Francis. Hello. Um, I'm calling because, like a previous caller, I also have rheumatoid arthritis, and I have um, some associated anemia. So I also see a hematologist. Mm -hmm. And when I saw him the other day, he said what he was concerned about now is enlarged red blood cells. And my first thought was, my God, even my blood cells are fat. But, you know, <laughs> uh, and, you know, but I, you know, he, and he said, I'll run um, a little array of blood tests and we'll see if we can pin down what is causing it and therefore what we might be able to do. And I, I'd never heard of such a thing and wondered if, if um, you had some insight. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you do bring up a good point that, you know, if you have a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, it is a multi-system disease. In other words, it doesn't just affect your joints. It can affect other organs in your body. And it is common to have uh, a uh, autoimmune type anemia with that too, where you're not making enough red blood cells. So that's one of the other. You can even have eye symptoms with it. So there's lots of different things that that physicians look for, you know. But yeah, so um, typically that is not. You know, we call we call enlarged. We don't call them fat red blood cells. So that. <laughs> So uh, there's a name for it. The fancy, fancy doctor term is macrocytosis. So um, they, they can be macrocytic, meaning bigger size uh, red blood cells. And the, typically there can be some reasons behind that. A lot of them are, um, uh, are you know, red blood cells change in size uh, during their lifespan. They normally last about three months, about 120 days, uh, three to four months, but they are made in the bone marrow, and they have a nucleus inside of them that is extracted from them so that they're just packets of hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is the molecule that helps carry oxygen to our system. 
And as they get older, they sort of break down. But if you don't have the, the components to make them early on, they can either be smaller than usual or larger than usual. And if they're larger than usual, two things that, they, that might be there in addition to, say, rheumatoid arthritis might be B12 mm-hmm. and folate deficiency, which I'm betting they've already checked you for those. And, uh, you know, those are simple blood tests to get. Um, but um, but there may be some other reasons why, and sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes we just have to treat the anemia the best we can. Mm-hmm. But typically, you know, the the size can help you with the type of anemia, like microcytic, like smaller red blood cells. The most common cause of that is iron deficiency anemia, and it can also be iron transport, rheumatoid arthritis, and other chronic disease associated. Uh, anemias tend to be normocytic. In other words, the red cells are usually normal size. So this might mean that you have something else going on, which is why that hematologist is wanting to investigate that a little further. He did smile and say, now, don't worry, you don't have leukemia. Well, there's the comfort. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, Beyond so that, that's, so I guess it's kind of a wait and see. Right. And it sounds to me like this get- is probably more of just a puzzle about the why, which is important. But, you know, even if you don't get an answer and your overall hemoglobin levels or or hematocrit levels are are, uh, stable, I don't think it's that big an issue to worry about either. Certainly not. Certainly not. I agree. It doesn't sound like leukemia. He asked me if I drink alcohol, and I said, yeah, and I asked how much. And it, it didn't seem to alarm me. But he said, for now, no alcohol. And I thought, where? I wonder where that fits in. But, it, it is a. It's one of the problem, causes. So. Right. It's it's mm-hmm. one of the causes of macrocytosis of those in large red blood cells. So that's there's a list of things that can cause that, and um, but that's mm-hmm. one of them. So that's why they ask about it. Okay. Well, I guess I'll have um, um, soft drinks and iced tea. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Ben. All right, Francis, thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you might be interested in. Or you might want to email us those questions. Maybe it's a little bit uh, different. Maybe you want to send a picture or something. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of catching things at a later time, a lot of you may say, you know, I just can't quite make the program or Maybe I just uh, caught a part of any of our uh, MPB-produced programs. You can go to our website uh, and search for those. We do archive those there on mpbonline.org. Or you can just simply uh, download uh, Southern Remedy as a podcast. So any of our Southern Remedy programs, just search for those, and you can go back and listen to those at your leisure in their entirety or just sort of scrub to where you left off. Let's go to Carol from Moss Point. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I have, I guess, two three, two questions. Okay. Um, I, 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 Kevin reminded me of my nail. I have a toenail, not just a, yeah, it's a toenail problem. I take chemo, and I'm on now on Zelota, and my big toe on my right, on my left, my right foot has started splitting, and I was told to use cortisone on it. So what, are your, what is your this question number one? Yeah, so a couple of things that could be going on with that. I think you said you were getting chemo currently. Is that right? I've had it. I'm on the I'm on the loader now. 
Okay. So a couple of things that could have caused that. Um, certainly, anytime somebody gets chemotherapy, you can sort of see that. In fact, it's one of those physical exam findings that sort of stay there even after you've completed the chemotherapy until that nail grows out past that point. If that's what's causing it, it's just going to have to be a wait and see. But if it's splitting or if it looks like it's sort of heaped up or thickened, then you might have something uh, like a, a, uh, a fungal infection in your nail. And those are very common. Uh, certainly here in the South, we get them a lot because of the, uh, it's, you know, because of the humidity um, and, the, and the warmth for most, most of the year. But typically they affect the toes more than the hands. But uh, if that's the case, you might need to have it treated, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's going to be long-term treatment. I'm not even sure if I want to do that. It it can be an issue It can for a number of reasons. Number one, it can sort of irritate your toe, and uh, particularly if it's if it's thickened, and it can irritate the, the uh, skin around that. And over time, that can cause little in- skin infections there and be a point of entry for things. And if you're a diabetic... Um, or have other chronic illnesses, it does put you at at risk for having these types of infections. But you can't really, you know, cortisone typically, in my experience, sometimes it'll help, but it won't do a lot. And it's not really a treatment for the infection. It's a treatment for inflammation. And a better treatment might be an oral antifungal agent, but before you do that, you want to make sure sometimes those will interact with other medications that you might be taking. It might be worthwhile to see a dermatologist, and they may want to take a little small scraping of your toenail and mm-hmm. see if it's growing out one of those fungal infections, and then they can sort of tell you, okay, this is exactly what you need to take. The thing with fungal infections, if they're on your skin and they're not in your scalp line like in your hair or they're not on your nails of of your hands or your feet, you can treat them topically most of the time and they do just fine. But it's a different game when you're talking about the toenail itself, the fingernail, or the hair shaft because it's those require you to take oral medications to really get it treated. And again, it's not something that's like a normal antibiotic treatment where it's like a week and you're done. We're talking like multiple weeks, sometimes multiple months of taking the medication to get it truly eradicated. So the first step, though, would be to see, okay, is this a fungal infection? Because the treatment is going to be a little bit different than, than what they're recommending right now. Okay. All right. Oh, uh, cotton and won't do it right away. So steroids won't do it, right? If, if it's a fungal infection, that's not going to, yeah, that's not going to improve it. And... Um, without, you know, looking at it myself, I can't say with 100%, but it, I, it probably is not going to be uh, something that's going to get it better with a, just a topical anim, uh, topical um, cortisone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, I need to see a dermatologist to just make sure all this. That's what I would do if I were you because they're the experts on skin and nails and they can, mm-hmm. and hair, and, and they can really give you the answers you need on it. All right. Thank you. And uh, oh, my next one's about uh, my husband has Achilles problem. It, it hurts. I don't know where I started on one foot. So what? Uh, like pain in the foot? Yeah, it's painful. Okay, painful yeah. Achilles. Part. 
Oh, and the Achilles on the back. Okay, I got you. Yeah. If it is pain, particularly with movement, like if you're standing on your toes or if you're getting up out of a chair and you first start walking, that can almost always, that's either tendonitis or it can be right where the tendon is attaching to the bone, where it connects to the bone. Sometimes you can get some inflammation there. Typically, there is a lot of physical therapy that can help with that. Rarely do medications work. You know, certain medications may help with the pain or, you know, just with the, that, those kinds of things. Um, but if it's, it does probably need to be looked at. And if it's not getting better with those, you might need to see somebody like a sports medicine or um, a uh, orthopedic surgeon that's, you know, experienced in that area to try to see if there's something else that might, might need to be done. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, then. I'll do, do one of those. Okay. And also, whenever I walk, like on my, uh, I just think like a certain spot, it just hurts every now and then, but I, uh, it might have something to do with my therapy. I mean, my uh, chemotherapy. Yeah, it might. And uh, keep like in mind, too, certain chemotherapy can can have lots of different side effects. So sometimes pain in your extremities that can be one of them so uh neuropathy can also you know it affects your nerves and there are there are some medicines like gabapentin or lyrica that can help with that particularly if it's related to chemo um mm-hmm. but yeah mention that if you haven't mentioned it definitely do that because there may be some other medications they can give you to help with that too all right i should to my uh, oncologist Yes, definitely. Yep. Okay. All right. I sure appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling, and uh, I hope you get better in those areas. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay. This is Southern Remedy, Dr. Jimmy Weezer, this morning, and I just have to say it is amazing to me just the uh, what our listeners bring to the program every week. I know I don't say that enough, but uh, tip, uh, truly particularly for Wednesdays, uh, you bring the content to the program, and it is always good. So uh, we do appreciate you listening, and we appreciate your contributions to the program. It's always more than just about you. It's what you bring for all the other people listening. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.